Welcome to another episode of the Legal Marketing Studio, the bi-weekly podcast examining best-in-class examples of branding, strategy, content, and technology in legal marketing. Each episode is devoted to a successful initiative, an innovative campaign, a promising technology, or an effective, proven strategy for developing new business at law firms from the largest international firm to the solo attorney. I'm Michael Meyer, the host of the Legal Marketing Studio. In this episode, I am joined with attorney Veronica Escobar. Veronica founded her boutique law firm in 2010 with an exclusive focus on elder law, which includes special needs planning and trust in estates. She also represents clients in Article 81 guardianship proceedings and counsels on long-term care planning and nursing home and other types of long-term care placements outside the home. She is a co-chair of the Elder Law and Special Needs section of the New York City Bar's Diversity Committee, as well as a deputy president of the Hispanic National Bar Association, the New York region. Veronica, welcome to the Legal Marketing Studio. Good morning, Michael. So I wanted to start. Uh, We are going to talk about how you use your personal identity in defining and marketing your practice. Um, But I wanted to start off by talking about uh, issues of cultural and language sensitivity. So I'm excited for this topic because I've always been really impressed because we've known each other for a while. Three years? Uh, Three years and counting. And counting. Yeah. Um, That's right. In elder law, it's always and counting, right? And counting. So I've been impressed the way that you've been very particular in how you've defined your practice and how you've marketed your practice uh, with a lens towards who you are and where you come from. Uh, And so I'm interested to, to talk about, you know, how does one look at racial and ethnic communities uh, or language groups, and then use those as selling points uh, and use those as avenues for increasing access to the legal system. I'll start from the philosophical point of view. I'll, I'll start there and what my personal philosophy is as to my practice. I am the children of immigrants. I have been in the position of watching my father when he was alive struggle to say things because he was never dominant in the language, but he got by. I've been in the position of watching my mother try to convey something and people not reacting in the right way because they make assumptions about her accent or her asking me to do things like, Veronica, could you make this phone call for me because you don't have an accent? So I grew up in an environment where I was very keenly aware of what it's like to leave your country, to leave what you know and to make a new life somewhere else and how difficult that is. So there is a sense of personal responsibility in me that if somebody comes to me and they're an immigrant and they're Latino and they're coming to look for help, that I do the best that I can for them. Because I tend to see a little bit of my family in every person that walks in. And sometimes I see a little bit of me, particularly when I see the adult children come in. So It's a very personal thing for me at times um, because I see the abuse that the community as a whole endures and particularly in these very politicized times. And I feel that someone that has been blessed to be in the family that she was born into, to have the educational opportunities that she was given, should give back to those that can't really help themselves or don't know how. I was hoping that you could talk a bit about the sensitivity to that and some of the issues that are at play. Sure. I'm bicultural. I, as a first-generation American, 
literally live in two worlds. I live in the world that I was born into as an American citizen, but I also have a piece of my heart in my parents' homeland. I am a fluent Spanish speaker. That has opened a lot of doors for me professionally, but also personally, because it makes me more connected to who I am as a person. To me, I'm more than my ethnic identity, but my ethnic identity is a very important part of who I am. And I'm very proud of my roots, of the family that I come from, and the fact that I can use my language ability and my cultural background to be of service to people who are dominant Spanish-speaking. So I had a friend who was a social worker, and he used to talk about starting where the client is. Yeah. And I get the sense that a lot of this understanding is exactly that, starting at the point where your clients are. Uh, could you talk about some of the, perhaps, assumptions or some of the issues that, that come up where people are either hesitant to come to a lawyer or don't understand the, the court system? Unfortunately, the legal community is small. And when you look at the representation of lawyers that are either part of racial or ethnic minorities, that number is even smaller. So try to imagine how many of me there are practicing in the elder law bar. There aren't too many. One of the issues that I find in my practice is that there is not enough outreach to the Latino community. They don't have access to the information. But then the other side of the equation is you have a community that by and large, not completely, is immigrant. Maybe they don't speak English well. Maybe they don't speak it at all. And there is a fear. There's also sometimes an embarrassment to reach out to ask a question or to even know what the answer is. And I think sometimes people from the Latino community, and particularly those who don't speak English, those who I think live more on the margins than maybe some more upwardly mobile members of that community, they live in a more marginalized way. And so people that live in the shadows, nobody knows that they're there. And so my ability to speak Spanish, I think, is an asset because that embarrassment and that shame goes away because I know how to speak their language. And I think that they feel comfortable knowing that they're being understood. And that's very important to me, whether the client is Latino or not. I think when you're dealing with issues of elder law and of aging and disease and, and looking at your own mortality, those are always very sticky subjects. People don't like talking about it. So getting a person to an elder law attorney is a challenge. Getting them to execute their documents is a challenge. So imagine if you live on the margins or if you're undereducated or you don't speak the language. That compounds the issue further. Something that strikes me in that is that there isn't – is that we're not talking about a single monolithic group. No. And that a lot of this diversity is partly language, partly cultural. There are class and economic issues. So it's a very kind of tangled web. Absolutely. Latin Americans are a very diverse group of people. Not only are they diverse racially, they're also diverse religiously. They're diverse by culture. They're diverse by traditions. For example, a Mexican native, meaning a Native American, is different than an Afro-Cuban, meaning a Cuban of African descent, not only by geography, but also by their history. 
the one thing or one of the things that ties us, and when I say us Latinos together, is language, um, our shared history of being colonized, uh, the motherland being Spain, um, similar historical development, corrupt governments, impunity, crime. Those are some of the things. And that's where we have our mutual understanding. But I think anybody that wants to engage any sort of a racial or ethnic community needs to understand that one size doesn't fit all. You can't paint all of them with the same brush. You have to be sensitive to where they are from and where they and why they're coming to you. It's easy for me to talk about it because, for example, I'm of Colombian descent, but I can understand a Mexican person because I know what goes on in that country. I keep up with the news. I've had clients who are Mexican. I belong to bar associations and other civic organizations where I come into contact with Latinos from all backgrounds. And we share stories all the time. And there's a commonality and there's an understanding that sometimes doesn't need to be spoken. This isn't just like Latino kind of thing. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. One of the things that you realize when you're a part of a ethnic or a racial minority, is that every community has their battles. Every community has things that they are passionate about. So a lot of the activities that we engage in as the Latino bar, the black bars undergoing, you know, they're, they're undertaking their own initiatives. So it's not just a Latino thing. People, and this is just my personal opinion, but there may be attorneys out there who share it, when you have been fortunate enough to have an education, to be given the opportunity to be a professional, it's a gift. It's, it's a gift to have an education. You oftentimes feel like you need to give back to your community. A year ago, two of my colleagues, part of the HMBA, they set up a clinic to address the issue of nail salons because a year ago, all of these nail salons were being raided and the majority of the nail technicians are Latina women. And there were workplace violations up the wazoo, and many of these places were either being fined or temporarily shut down. So two of the members felt that it was an important enough issue that they put together a clinic that was really well attended by the community, by political and government officials to address this issue and to inform the community of what this is all about. So there is a sense of personal responsibility, especially when you have certain tools at your disposal that can help somebody else. I think the risk would be in doing it inauthentically without that true intent to help generally and broadly. And you know what? I think that when you're doing something because you want to get, it comes across pretty quickly. I think that when you give, you have to give to give. It's not with the expectation of getting something back. Some people will never be able to repay you, sometimes because they don't think they have to or they don't have the means to do it. But that's not the point. I think in the way that I look at the world, if you do good, it will come back to you. And sometimes in ways that you don't even expect it to come back to you. I think you have to be authentic in life and also in practice. You have to be authentic because if you are authentic, it breeds trust and it helps your professional profile grow. I don't know how a person can separate their personal ethics from their professional ethics. Some people do it. Like a criminal defense attorney may not like their client, 
because he could be a pedophile or a murderer, but they believe in the Constitution and that every person under the law is entitled to a defense and an adequate and proper defense. So there is a way to separate professional ethics from your personal opinion. But I think that if you hold yourself to a certain standard and you that translates into your practice, it can only bring good things. Because when you act in truth, when you do things with good intentions, people take notice of that. It doesn't go unnoticed. People are smarter than you give them credit for. And people may not say what they're thinking, but they're thinking it. So it sounds like you really hold yourself to a higher standard. I hold myself to a higher standard in everything, Michael. You, I thought you knew that already. <laughs> I thought you knew that. I think that speaks to your authentic interest in helping your community. Because I've had a blessed life. I came from a household where education was paramount. Excellence was expected. I look back on it now, and I'm very thankful to have parents that lit a fire under my behind when I needed it. Because even though I'm very determined and I work really hard, I owe a lot of who I am to them. And I realize that there are people for many different reasons or circumstances that aren't that lucky. They have to fight harder to just move an extra step. So there is a sense of gratitude for what life, if you want to say God, has given me. And I feel like I need to give a little bit back because you always have to hold the door open for the people that come after you. Whether that's somebody in the community, that's a Latino who's in law school or in college that wants to be a lawyer. There are a lot of things that we as Latinos, and I'm really just going to focus on me, do behind the scenes um, to try to make things better for those that come after us based on the experiences that we've had and what we've learned, just to make it easier. So I want to segue here, and it's a bit of a non sequitur, but I want to go back to some of the business aspects and the marketing aspects. Mm. Let's start with like a the broad view and, and how you view Spanish language as a part of your personal, as part of your firm brand. There aren't too many elder law attorneys who speak Spanish. Um, Latinos are underrepresented in the law as a whole, and women are severely underrepresented, Latinas. So whenever I go to elder law meetings, I'm usually the only Latina in the room. To me, that's an advantage. To me, I saw that as an opportunity to be of service to my community because obviously somebody's not paying attention. So in what ways do you do you, I mean, how f much do you put that at the forefront when you are selling your services or when you're talking? I mean, do you change your message for different communities or different audiences or different specific I always clients? mention that I'm bilingual. I always mention that I'm a fluent Spanish speaker. And that's usually met very positively, even by my elder law colleagues, because many of them are English dominant. And they're always looking for somebody like me when they can't help a client. Like a couple of months ago, a colleague of mine had a client in her office and she felt like they were not connecting for whatever the reason was. And this was her client. And she called me and she said, Veronica, would you want to consult with this person? Because I feel like there's a disconnect because they are of a Latino background. I think they were Dominican. And I think that someone like you might be better able to get through to them and be understood because I feel like there's a wall. So it's not uncommon for colleagues of mine who aren't Spanish dominant who don't speak Spanish or aren't Latino to reach out to me because they know 
that I speak the language. So to answer your question, I don't really change my message. I think that when I say I'm an attorney and I'm in a room full of Latinos, they want to know what I do. And when they figure out that it's elder law, they're like, oh, that's a good thing. Let me take your card because they don't meet people like me that often. When I'm in a room of people who are majority not Latino and I talk about what I do and the fact that I'm also Spanish speaking and fluent, their ears also perk up because they may not even practice in my area, but lawyers come across all different types of people every single day. When they say that you're a lawyer, a client can come to you and ask you a question that you're not proficient in. So it's always good for another colleague to know that I work in elder law, but I also speak Spanish. So a lot of it is word of mouth. I wonder if this would translate, because you're a solo firm, I wonder if this would translate to larger firms or if this is something that's very a very personal selling point. Well, there are boutique firms that work with certain populations. There are firms that work with Asian clientele or South Asian, and there are boutique firms that will work with Latin American expats. I know of one firm, I can't think of the name off the top of my head, that works with very wealthy, well-to-do Latin Americans and Brazilians and also people from Portugal. And many of their associates and partners are either Latino or or Portuguese, and that is their clientele. So they do high-end trust and estates work with very wealthy Latino clients. So it does translate. It does translate away from the solo market to the law firm. I wish I had looked up numbers on this, uh, but certainly the Hispanic population in this country is growing. 50 million nationally. So it seems like a an audience or a, a clientele that's going to need more of these services and it would be good to be aligning yourself with this opportunity. And I am. <laughs> and I am. <laughs> that's why you're here. And I am. Yep. But it's also very often, as you'd mentioned before, there's a heavy immigrant population within this population, sure. right? It's not a monolithic group, as we were talking about. Are there any social justice or systemic issues that you're trying to overcome or to address in working with this community as well? Too many Latinos, Michael, fail to plan. Or when they realize it, it's when they're in crisis mode. And sometimes they rely on alternative forms of knowledge to make decisions, i.e. a family member, a neighbor, television, the internet, a talk show, and they don't go to where they need to go to. And then that ends up hurting them. And because it is a immigrant population, they're also prone to many forms of abuse. I mean, I I can't tell you how many immigrants have fallen for immigration scams where somebody promises to do the paperwork to get their green card and the only thing that they're left holding is debt because they gave thousands of dollars to somebody, sometimes somebody within their own community, and they never see that money again. So it's a community that because of their immigrant status and, you know, depending on the on the demographic that you're looking at, if they're not educated, if they're not sophisticated, if they just don't know where to look, they're going to be taken advantage of. And I've had many adult children of Latino clients come into my office, people with assets, they're in their 80s, and they've never planned. So their options are limited. And I always wish that they had taken more initiative sooner. 
so I think that the immigrant mentality plays a role. I think the lack of language fluency for some plays a role. And very likely cultural taboos, depending on the person or the family. They may not like talking about death. They may not like talking about money. They may not be comfortable. That's a very intimate subject, and people don't realize that. Illness is an intimate subject. Death is an intimate subject. And so there are some people that tend to stay away from it. Are there any risks in aligning yourself this way in terms of a larger market? I think that some attorneys who are ethnic like myself avoid marketing themselves as Spanish-speaking or putting their ethnicity front and center because they don't want to be pigeonholed. And that's okay. I don't think that just because you look a certain way or speak a language that you have to cater to a certain population. If you don't want to do it, then don't do it. There are some practice areas that don't lend themselves to working with a certain community. It's just because it, it just it, there's not enough clientele there to build a practice. I've never looked at it as a hindrance. When I was thinking about going out on my own, I always looked at my ethnicity, my cultural background, and my Spanish-speaking ability as an asset. There are so many people that pay a lot of money to learn to speak Spanish, and I basically was born speaking it. To me, it's one of the best gifts that my parents ever gave me was the ability to speak another language. And it has benefited me tremendously, not only in my professional life, but personally, in terms of being able to connect to other people in that language, which is very different than not being able to speak it and trying to connect through that language barrier. Well, I want to close this uh, with something that you just said, or at least hinted at, and that's sort of the sense of doing everything that you're doing authentically. Mm Mm-hmm. And I suspect that the real risk in aligning a firm's brand the way that you have would be in not doing it authentically. Do you have any closing thoughts about seeing a market and selling to a market, but not taking advantage of those in a way that isn't from an either an authentic place on your end or with aligned with their needs on their end? I always try to... Th- put myself in someone else's shoes. I always try to think of my parents going to see a lawyer or going to see any other kind of a professional and how I would want them to be treated. I would want them to be treated with respect. I would want someone to speak to them with the truth, to be transparent, to be thorough, and to do their job keeping that client's best interest at front and center. I think that where things go awry is where you lose focus of what your role is as an attorney and all you want to do is make money. The moment making money matters more than the welfare of a client, that's, I think, where you're really in danger. And so for me, it's always about a client-centered practice, doing what's in the best interest of a client, but also making a living. You have to put that in the balance. But- what are you not willing to do to make a buck? Well, Veronica, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Legal Marketing Studio podcast. The Legal Marketing Studio is a production of Picture More Business. The theme music was composed by Ryan Knock of Knock It Out Music. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe. We can be found on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Extended content, including photographs and links, can be found on our website, legalmarketing.studio. 
Note that there's no .com there. It's just legalmarketing.studio. If you'd like to appear on the Legal Marketing Studio or know someone who might, please send an email to producer at legalmarketing.studio or reach out via the contact page on our website, legalmarketing.studio. We're always looking for new and innovative approaches to legal marketing. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening.